Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the University of Johannesburg Center for African Foreign Policy and Diplomacy. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And we're heading up to uh, Nairobi, Kenya, where we're joined by uh, Jacob Kushner,、uh, who recently just published、uh, an e-book on China's Congo Plan and what the、uh, what the economic superpower sees in the world's poorest nation. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, and、uh, we're thrilled to have you on because the DRC is a topic that we've talked about a n- number of different times in the past, and it's one that we love coming back to because it is so complex uh, and uh, and and so varied. And the opportunity that you seem to have had to be able to actually get on the ground to talk to people seems rather unique. Let's just very quickly、uh, set up kind of what your project was. You you published this new ebook. Uh, and uh, and that's you did that in conjunction with the Pulitzer Center. It's really a very nice read. It's about forty-two pages. Think of it as a, a very you know a long Vanity Fair article is the way I would describe it. And、uh, it was a, an easy read,、uh, not too academic, and not to disparage、uh, Cobus and any of your brethren.、Uh, sometimes the the academic stuff is just so dry and boring. And so the fact that Jacob actually got on the ground and talked to real people. Uh, was was fantastic. Tell us a little bit about the background of what brought you to this project, and、uh, and and kind of what the motivation was. Well, you know, there's so much、uh, research, most of it academic, being done right now, as you well know, on, on the issue of、uh, Chinese investment across Africa, and particularly in the DRC. There's a researcher who you had on before, named Johanna Janssen, who is doing tons of research on Chinese investment in DRC, and there's all this this literature. And I, I I thought it'd be interesting to try to take that and and write it in a way that perhaps a more general audience、uh, might take some interest in it. And so I set out to research, you know, what China. China's rise in Africa kind of looks like in one particular country. I focused on the DRC、um, because of the wealth and academic literature that's out there on this new infrastructure for minerals deal called Sikkimines、okay. that two state-owned Chinese companies are doing there. And yeah, I mean, I set out just to to meet Chinese people and learn their perceptions of the Congolese and vice versa, and and try to get a real on the ground sense. Of yeah, you know, the relationships between these two people、uh, in the context also of this large deal. Well, on that front, how difficult was it to get access to the Chinese and to the Congolese? One of the the big complaints that a lot of researchers and and, and journalists alike have is that you know the, the Chinese are not the most open people in Africa, and sometimes getting them to talk and open up、uh, is quite difficult. How did you go about overcoming that challenge? You know, I, I, it's, it's interesting because ex- my experience was a little of, of both. It was a little bit of struggling to get certain、um, Chinese and sometimes Congolese officials to open up to me. But、um, the other half of my time was, was the opposite.、Uh, when I arrived in the mining town of Lubumbashi in southeastern Congo,、uh, Rodman Way, one of the main characters in my story,、uh, a Chinese guy who works at a copper smelting plant there, he picked me up from the airport and brought me over and invited me to eat with his Chinese、uh, coworkers and, and you know essentially. Showed me around uh, uh, the factory where he works and the complex where he and his Chinese coworkers live、uh, for about three days. So, so you know, some of these.、Um, I, I think it's important to note the difference between different types of Chinese who are coming to Congo. There are. 
people I met who came, you know, 15 years ago who are you know somewhat assimilated in in the culture a little bit. They built their businesses and their lives there. I'm thinking of a Chinese doctor who came 15 years ago to Lubumbashi and treats his patients with modern pharmaceuticals, but also with Chinese acupuncture. Um, and then there's people like Robin who came, you know, in the past decade or so, and and you know some of whom are learning a little bit of the local languages and that sort of thing. Um, and then there are the more recent um, Chinese uh, arrivals, as far as I can tell, which are you know re- associated with the Chinese state-owned companies, largely in relation to the Sikomines project. And those people, um, unfortunately, wouldn't really speak with me. I was able to sneak in and, and speak with a couple uh, lower-level uh, employees, but um, the, the heads of CREC, the Chinese uh, state-owned construction company, uh, they, they wouldn't speak to me at all. So it was really a mixed bag, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize uh, it as, as the Chinese generally are unwilling to speak about their activities because it was a little bit of both depending on the type of Chinese people I was, I was trying to interview. Um, how you know, kind of, if you swing that that uh, issue to the Congolese side, how much uh, responsiveness did you get from the Congolese government? You mentioned you know, kind of, some sitting around waiting for for Congolese ministers to get back to you, and not them not getting back to you. Did you manage to get data from them, or is you know, kind of, is it as difficult as it looks from the outside? Sure. Now, certain people in the Congolese government, including the opposition leaders, were very open to talking with me, people who kind of opposed this deal because they don't know the details about it. So I went to the man who's arguably kind of overseeing this, one of the men who are overseeing this, his name is Moise Kanga. I went to him and met with him in Kinshasa um, to ask him for more details on the contract. He said the contract copy uh, that I already had is the most recent, and some researchers have taken issue that, saying it, it may not be the most recent. But, you know, really what it came down to, I was trying to get from him this document that he said that showed how much all the minerals are worth, all these, all this copper and, and, and some amounts of cobalt that the Chinese are going to mine, uh, along with the state-owned mining company over the next 25 years. Um, I haven't seen a study that shows what that could actually be worth. And uh, Moise Kanga told me a study does exist, but um, he, he said I could come back and, and get it from him later. I came back, he didn't respond to me. I, I never got that, and to my knowledge, it hasn't been published elsewhere. So it's just, it, it, it is a challenge out of some of the Congolese officials involved, I would say, just to get facts about what is precisely going on between the Congolese government and these Chinese state-owned companies. Now, one of the key themes that I took away from from your book was, you know, perceptions. And and that was a something that kind of you know it was a thread that went through almost every one of the chapters perceptions on what the sickle mine deal is actually worth you know the chinese have one view congolese uh, have another view but congolese have different perceptions on that value uh, perceptions on how the chinese view the, the the congolese and how the congolese view the chinese and then perceptions on how the west views the chinese in the congo so that was one of the the takeaways that i had and i want to kind of walk through a couple of these to get your impression uh, early on in the book, you, you, you ask a very provocative question. Let me quote it here. You said, what does it mean for America's future as an economic power if the Chinese have learned to profit by doing business more or less the same way it has always been done, only doing it better? And here you're raising a question about the perception of how the Chinese actually operate in places like the DRC, where oftentimes the West will immediately discount it as saying it's corrupt or they're cheating somehow, and that's how they're able to make such advances. Tell me about this question, and, and did you – I didn't get a sense that you answered this question in the book. So I'd like to find out what's your perception of America and the West's future and that question that you asked. I think to the Congolese, many of the Congolese I came across, 
China's presence was very much one of um, uh, you know competitive advantage over Western companies. You know, one of the first things people would mention to me is how you can buy phones and electronics so cheaply from these Chinese uh, stores. Um, you know, Chinese-made electronics, um, and you, so really, you know, it, it, and, and certainly in terms of construction, I mean, Chinese companies are winning all these construction contracts because they can build uh, roads, you know, more cheaply. Um, and so, I think to to the Congolese, I, I discovered that it's really a matter of. Um, you know, they, they want investment. They want to be able to buy things. They, there's an emerging middle class, and they want to be part of that and be able to c- consume. And they want infrastructure and be able to travel on nicer roads. And it just so happens that the Chinese, be it for reasons of competitive advantage largely, are the ones who are doing that now. I ran across many Congolese who said, we want the Americans here. We'd love to see Western companies doing this sort of thing. Um, but you just don't see a trend toward that, um, uh, largely for reasons of competitive advantage. And that competitive advantage, Cobus, comes from the marriage between, you know, the, 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 the state banking system in China as well as the state-owned companies. So there is very, very low-cost financing to actually implement some of these projects. But, you know, Cobus, one of the things we're hearing from Jacob, again, is this difference between people who are actually on the ground talking with, you know, Congolese and with Chinese and those that sit in the diaspora and kind of manufacture, uh, you know, these fantasies of neocolonialism, which you and I have, you know, debunked time and time again. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think well, one of the very interesting points that, that came up in, in Jacob's book and that I'd like to ask, ask him about more um, is this this uh, perception that, that I got that there is this dominant culture of, of corruption within the Congo and culture of shady shady accounting um, and that you know, kind of, if you accuse the Chinese of, of of taking part in that system, you also need to accuse everyone else who's in the Congo of, of also taking part in the system. Um, Jacob, is that a fair assessment? Did I understand you correctly in that way? That's exactly what I found. You know, I mean, I certainly went through a lot of these kind of perceptions, and, and, and while I started researching this and realized that many were misconceptions, and one of them that I had was that you know the Chinese are getting their way in Congo just through corruption. You know, unlike. Um, how Western companies tend to do it. But in fact, when I got to Congo, I realized that the, the corruption scandal that, that's kind of um, most prominent and that officials are most worried about right now has nothing to do with the Chinese at all. It's just this, this company that's uh, likely owned by Israeli billionaire Dan Gertler that, you know, the Congolese uh, state secretly sold its stake in a mining venture it had with that company uh, without telling anyone, without publishing it, which violated some terms uh, of a loan it had with the IMF. So in reaction, the IMF uh, decided not to renew this development loan it had with Congo, losing so Congo essentially forfeited $225 uh, million dollars, uh, over this. And so, you know, you look at this example of corruption that has nothing to do with the Chinese, and you have to ask yourself, um, you know, maybe, the, uh, you know, are the Chinese really coming in in a more corrupt or insidious way than anyone else, or are they really just, just doing the same thing everyone else has always done in Congo in order to you know, secure contracts and, and do business and, and earn profit? Yeah, but okay, so let's get down to the brass tacks. The way that everybody's been doing things in the Congo for the past 200 years um, is completely effed up. I mean, it's been, it's been exploitative. It's never been to the advantage of the Congolese. And one of the questions that you bring up is, you know, are the Chinese any different? Um, are they if, – if, as you say, they're basically just following in the footsteps of what the Americans, the Belgians and others have been doing in the Congo for generations, um, then it doesn't bode well for the Congolese. But you also kind of open the door a little bit 
to suggest that, well, things might be different. You know, there's more investments in infrastructure that are happening that it, it's clearly happened under the Belgians. Um, you, you, you quoted uh, Mac Dumba, and you can tell us who he is, um, you know, saying the Chinese are doing things that nobody else will. And so which, which direction do you think this is going in? That's a great point you bring up. I mean, um, there's, there's something to be said for the fact that these, um, you know, that there's a huge opportunity right now with Chinese investment. Certainly, Congolese uh, leaders will tell you that, and many Congolese people will too. And look at all these roads being built, and say this could this could really help us. Um, I think the truth is hard to discern, and I think um, it'll really depend upon whether Congo's government um, is able to collect the sorts of revenues and taxes from the from this deal um, and others like it that it should, and then also that it distributes it. And, uh, and, and that transparency increases, so we can track that. So that's all. And, and unfortunately, I think a lot of people are pessimistic about that idea, given the record of the Congolese government in terms of you know corruption, such as what I just described. But I mean, were the Congolese government uh, held accountable to all this money that's going to be coming in through taxes, through its uh, state-owned mining company, which has a large share, uh, one-third share in, in the in the deal? Um, you know, were they held accountable for all this and, and the money followed and tracked, that's a lot of money that could do real good in the country. Um, so I think um, there's the potential there. It's just a matter of uh, uh, making it happen. But anybody who spent any amount of time, I used to live in the Congo uh, for quite some time. Um, there's, you know, this is, this is one of the most, if not the most dysfunctional country uh, on the planet. This is a country that Transparency International puts down uh, in the bottom 10 of its most corrupt countries. There is very little optimism that the Congolese government will do anything more than, than, than siphon off as much money as is possible for a small group, enough, a small group of people. You know, Cobus, it comes back to this question. Uh, again, another themes of our discussions over the years uh, is the governance question. Is that, you know, who is to blame here? Is it the fact that, you know, Congo is so dysfunctional and corrupt and messed up and that the, the billions of dollars or the hundreds of millions of dollars being invested by the Chinese is not going to benefit the people? Is that the Chinese fu- fault or is that the fact that, you know, the DRC in Kinshasa basically has, you know, nothing resembling a, a functioning government? Yeah, that's actually, I wanted to ask both of you who, you know, have spent some time in the Congo. Um, you know, the two things that you, that you read about the Congo is A, um, you know, big mining deals and then B, rebels and at the moment, particularly the U, the, the UN supporting the, the, um, the DRC government's fight against the M23, um, rebel group. Um, and, you know, kind of, so how do those two come together? I mean, you know, kind of, when you're talking about governance in the Congo, are you talking about Kinshasa being having a certain level of governance and then other areas like Goma and so on being completely governmentless or how, how should one approach that and then how do you bring, you know, kind of outside, outside actors like the Chinese, how do you bring that into that logic? Jacob, let me give my take and then I'll let you and I'll defer to you because you've more, been there more recently. Um, many people look at the Congo as a kind of, you know, a, a single entity. And I think that's one of the mistakes is that Kinshasa, for the most part, um, really doesn't have full control or any control over big parts of the country. Remember, this is a country the size of Western Europe. It's massive. There are very few, if any, contiguous roads. The Chinese are trying to build one east-west road between linking uh, Goma in the east with Kinshasa in the south, in the in the west. 
that has yet to happen as far as I know. Um, and so basically this country is held together through a form of alliances and tribute and, and patronage. Um, but Lubumbashi, where Jacob was, has um, – you know, Kabila has a very tenuous control over that. The federal government really doesn't have that and so that, that, that stake. And so what ends up happening is we don't have it as a functioning government the way we think of government. More importantly, the army and the police – uh, as well as the central authorities are, are the most corrupt entities that exist in the, in the country. Uh, so, so again, it turns it on its head and, and that makes it difficult. I think the Chinese are just very adept at working in between the cracks of this very corrupt system. Jacob, what's your take on that? I think that's, that's a pretty fairly accurate way to look at it. I, I, I wouldn't, I'd be careful not to write off the Congo of this hopelessly corrupt country, though. I mean, I spoke with the head of uh, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative in Congo. So this is the organization that tries to get governments around the world to abide by, um, you know, measures of transparency and openness in, in the mining sector. And, you know, he was encouraged by how much the government is publishing and the steps they have taken. You know, his job has gotten easier. He gave me this example of, you know, he has to go around with some Chinese companies and say, show us the contract, show us how much you're paying to the Congolese state. And he said sometimes they refuse. Well, recently... He um, actually was able to uh, get a, a document from the Congolese government that showed, well, this is exactly how much this country paid us. So when he went to them, he said, well, look, I have it right here. I just need you to confirm it for me. And he said the Chinese were kind of taken aback um, that the government had given him that. So so I, I wouldn't say it's hopeless, but I, as far as, you know, the disconnection of, uh, of governance, that's absolutely right. I mean, as you mentioned, in this country is you know, divided into two. There's no road that connects the capital of Kinshasa yet um, to to where all these minerals are, are being processed. Um, and that's what you see. That's why you see that the militias like the N23 being able to, um, you know, take advantage of that area in order to control the minerals trade there. I mean, it's, it's lack of governance um, is, I think, the central problem to all of this. And, and, and it will really, how well con- uh, the government is able to oversee um, these mining deals and make sure it and its people benefit from it will ultimately determine um, the value of China's um, rise in China. Let's uh, let's just kind of start wrapping this up a little bit, and, and I want to kind of again step back in the you know the the, the thirty thousand meter level, and and kind of look down at the issue and talk about the perception of the Congolese towards the Chinese. You mentioned that again, there are some very complicated emotions that come in here. On on the one hand, you you quoted, uh, let me, um, oh, thirty nine year old Kayenda who is a mother of 10, and she, in the quote that you used in the book, really encapsulated the very complex emotions that people have about the Chinese, not only in the Congo, but in Africa as a whole. You said, the way they are helping us, giving us jobs, that's good, but also they're stealing from us. And, and did you feel that, that that complex mixture of emotions was common when you talked to people in Lumumbashi and in Kinshasa and other places, or were people more partisan one side or the other? I think it is common. I think if you had to go one way or the other, I'd say more people are that I ran into were, were positive in terms of China's investment and negative. But that, but that quote, yeah, it really does represent. I mean, the, the way of looking at it. I mean, Congolese, they're not. You know, they they know very well what's going on. They know very well that the Chinese are profiting um, from their nation's minerals and that they, they know where a lot of their leaders are, are doing so as well. And so 
there's this, this, this feeling that, you know, uh, you know, rightly so, uh, we should be, we, the people should be benefiting too. And, and that's something that they're, they're waiting to see how that will work out. Um, I was wondering if I could jump in here. I was, um, you know, kind of speaking also from, from a kind of high level. Um, do you see differences between the way that Chinese state-owned enterprises operate in the Congo versus other Chinese companies? Um, in your book, you, you kind of you mentioned at some stage, obviously, the, the controversy around the China International Fund. And that was a particularly controversial case. Um, but, you know, in, in a wider sense, um, are SOEs more or less, you know, kind of accountable than other kinds of Chinese companies, or is it difficult to make that distinction at the moment? You know, the distinction is a little difficult, but I would say overall um, it's it's pretty similar between the two. I mean, I didn't see any, you know, examples of regulation by the government over working conditions, for example. I mean, one of the, probably the way where, like, Chinese and, and Congolese people most interact is in the workplace. There are Chinese companies that, you know, are employing Congolese, like this Robin and uh, in my book and his fellow co-workers at this smelting factory that melts uh, rock into copper ore into uh, into copper. Um, you know, I mean, the, the workers there, um, you know, work without protection, without face masks, and there's lava and sparks flying around. It looks pretty dangerous. They inhale smoke all day. But so do the Chinese. Um, I mean, that, that's the way they learned how to smelt uh, back in China. Um, so I don't think it's malicious necessarily, but nonetheless, you have the situation that's not being regulated. Um, and, and, and a study of, of companies in that area showed that often there are many violations of, of, of um, you know, labor standards in that area by Chinese companies. But then you look at um, you know, the larger state-owned companies, the, the big ones, uh, like Crack that's building these roads, and I met with workers who work for them. That, you know, they complain. They say, well, look, we have jobs, yes, but we're getting minimum wage. They don't provide us, you know, boots. They don't provide us any equipment either. Um, and so, so really, um, if we look at the labor side of things, uh, I haven't seen much difference between how uh, smaller Chinese entrepreneurs are, are treating their workers or interacting with their workers versus how these state-owned companies are uh, either. Well, if you are a student uh, and you're starting your studies on China-Africa, this is an excellent, uh, you know, starting point. Uh, if you are, are kind of new to the whole subject, you know, Jacob does a fantastic job of kind of providing a broad overview. And a lot of the themes that Jacob brings up in the DRC context are actually applicable to some of the pan-continental themes that, that Kobus and I have talked about uh, for quite some time. So I highly recommend it. It's an e-book, so it's available uh, on the iBookstore. You can get it from Amazon. You can get it from uh, the, the Barnes & Noble Nook uh, and something called Kobo, which I've never heard of. But uh, on the Amazon edition, at least the one that I read too, you, you know, Jacob also went ahead and, and put in some videos, uh, which we've posted one or two of them on our Facebook page, which to me was some of the most interesting parts of what you've did. This is truly a multimedia project. Uh, we posted today uh, a video where you interviewed, you know, who are the Chinese and why did they come to, to, to Congo? So I thought that was very interesting as well. Uh, it's a 42-page read, 43-page read, so it's not too long, very well written, uh, and just highly recommended. So, Jacob, at the end of every show, what we do is we kind of give uh, people a little bit of an idea of where people can find you if they want to follow what you're reading and what you're doing and what your next project will be. Uh, so where can people follow you, both on the web and specifically on Twitter or Facebook or some of the social media outlets? 
Yeah, they can either go to my website, jacobkushner.com, in which you will see um, links to the book, where you can purchase the book and other reporting I've done from Congo for the Global Post and other outlets. And you can also go to the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, which supported um, my research. Um, if you go to the pulitzercenter.org uh, and search for either my name or China's Congo Plan, you'll find a page with additional um, articles and videos and, and resources uh, from my research. Excellent. And Cobus, where can people find you if they want to follow what you're doing these days? Um, I'm on, I update our, our Facebook page frequently, um, and you'll see my name in brackets there, um, when I, you know, when I respond to comments. I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And, uh, Jacob, we hope that you'll join our discussion on Facebook at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. I know people would love to hear from you and what you're saying. We've got over 106,000 followers now, mostly from Africa. So it's a really, uh, just fantastic discussion that's going on there. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at EOLander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. So that's a good way to stay on top of some of the issues that are going on there. And of course, the best way to follow what we're doing is on our podcast, uh, which you can subscribe to on uh, Stitcher, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, uh, on the BlackBerry Network in South Africa, and also on the Kindle, uh, as a Kindle app as well. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. We'll be back again later this week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. 